but we're trending in the right direction for cost basis for importers. That's a fantastic thing for the consumer and for us as business owners, right? We're trying to budget a project. That won't translate to the distributors, the Lowe's, the Home Depots until probably Q1 of Q2 of next year, unfortunately. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and investing with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm Jeanette Robinson, Director of Investor Relations, and today with me is Jeff Davis. Jeff is the managing partner of Bridgestone Holdings, LLC. He's been involved in real estate investing since 2015, while simultaneously working as a global sales executive for a Fortune 200 logistics company since 2005. He has a BA in business administration with a specialization in marketing from Louisiana State University, and he currently resides in Spring, Texas with his lovely wife and, believe it or not, Five children. So, Jeff, we know that you are definitely not bored. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. No, no boredom here. No sleep either. <laughs> no doubt. What is the age range of your kids? 15, 14, 12. He's eight. And then we have a one year old. Oh, we have a COVID baby. We have a COVID baby. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you guys found something useful to do with your time, and that's all I'll say to that. So, yeah, I guess real estate wasn't keeping me busy. <laughs> well, congratulations on a very robust family. That's wonderful. All right. So, Jeff, let's just jump in. And, you know, it's interesting that you are still currently working, you know, as an executive with your W-2 and also, you know, starting to build out your real estate career. At the same time, I think a lot of people have been in similar positions or are currently in a similar position. And that's really cool. So do you want to just kind of touch a little bit on what prompted you to start building out, you know, kind of the second career path of yours? And, you know, basically, what is your experience and background so far in real estate investing? Yeah, well, it started off with taking commission checks from sales and reinvesting them into real estate to make it grow or just stabilize it, right? Because that can be a volatile career. Commissions can go up and they can go down, but rental checks, they were consistent. It was an extra paycheck every month. So it was a way to make my commissions grow. And what I also learned was there's some tax benefits there. 
after a few years, I actually saw that I could refinance and that was tax-free money and I could buy another property. So I had learned quite a few different nuances to the single family and figured out wholesaling that I really did not like, but I liked rentals. I liked being a landlord and, and providing a good, safe, clean place to live. Flipping properties was also a cool, a cool thing with single family too, right? Taking something that needed a lot of work and, and turning it into something special. That, that was a fun process as well. And overall, right, it's there's a lot of fun things about real estate. And it's hands-on and you get to meet a lot of people and you're running your own little business. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm sure that's very challenging, you know, with the day job, with your kids to also be doing that on the side. So how in the world did you maintain your sanity as you were kind of building this out and going through this process? That's a fantastic question. And I mean, time management becomes very critical, hiring the right contractors, which is a process of trial and error. I will say that, but having good, reliable team, right? You and I were just talking about team, having those team. Luckily, I do have an older son, so I would get him and his friends to work, which was kind of my favorite part, right? Get some wheelbarrows and a truckload of dirt out to fill in dirt around a property or rip up carpet. Mm -hmm. So had no problems doing that. They they work on Whataburger down here in Texas. (laughs) So as much as I could involve the family, I would, but that limited amount of time is what ultimately got me into multifamily because each and every house ultimately fell on my shoulders. And after each project was done, we're at ground zero. And as you mentioned, I am still in a W-2, right? I couldn't figure out how to scale this thing up. I actually even hired a project manager to manage multiple projects and it didn't work out. It just cost more money and more time. And I ended up talking with some friends who were, they were scaling at an unbelievable pace and rate. And they got me into a different group. And I said, this single family thing is not going to work. So you hit the nail on the head. Time is what got me into multifamily. Interesting. Well, and that's actually a good segue, you know, into kind of the process point of the discussion, which is, you know, how do you make those transitions? And, you know, how do you start to kind of build out that scaling? Sometimes it seems like a hurdle to people. So do you want to go into a little bit more about how you were able to transition from single family into multifamily? And kind of what are some of the key pieces along the way that you had to build in, in order to really successfully move from one to the other? I started from a clean slate. I I can tell you how I did it was I disposed of all of my single family real estate. And I made a personal commitment that I was not going to be distracted by any more. And from there, I I entered a group me and you were just talking about, right? And it was the same group that I had some friends who were in and learned, right? They have an education program. They have, you know, in-person networking events. So I traveled to Phoenix and then I went to Austin and really began meeting these people who were all doing the same thing. And some of them have massive multifamily portfolios. And then some of them were just starting out like me and everybody was super cool. (laughs) And everybody had different talents, right? Some of these guys were all very analytical and then I'm a sales guy and 
everybody just does what they're really good at and they create these teams. And so after a few months, I started to figure out and, and team up with people who wanted to use their own talents and build out something special for the long term. Nice. Okay. I don't, know, I don't know if I answered your question. I just kind of rambled on. No, that's all right. There's actually a couple of things that I can kind of touch on there. So, you know, building teams is definitely a big challenge, but it's absolutely critical. We say this at Blue Lake all the time that real estate investing is absolutely a team sport. There is, you know, no way that you can scale out and be really successful in real estate investing as a one man show. It's just absolutely impossible. So I couldn't agree with you more about finding the right team and that has the right strengths. Definitely. One of the other things that kind of piqued my curiosity is you said that you actually exited from your your single family home portfolio. So I'm curious, how did you make that exit? Did you do it? I know that previously I spoke with another guest who did something similar. And the way that he exited from all of his single family home portfolio was through something called an installment sales trust, which allowed him to essentially still be able to defer capital gains taxes and kind of gave him a similar advantage to a 1031 exchange without having to actually do a 1031 exchange, but he got some of the same tax benefits, things like that. So I'm just curious, how did you exit from your portfolio? And do you have any takeaways, you know, about either this was a good idea, do it this way, or this wasn't a good idea and don't do it this way that you would share with any listeners in the same boat? Yeah. So yesterday, my taxes were officially filed. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. And I exited. I am not some savant, but I did exit everything. My last property was sold in September of 2021. So I guess the timing was great, right? I mean, 2021 uh, was a pretty hot market. So we were, we were hitting a lot of things correctly. I had talked with a 1031 lawyer that my CPA introduced me to, and that 1031 advised me not to do that. My wife is a stay-at-home, and she also coordinates within the business. So working through with my CPA, we've got that real estate professional status. Nice. And I invested in several syndications last year. My God couple of K-1s. And so I, I did. Unfortunately, I booked about a, I think, a $60,000 loss this year. So that is- <laughs> yes, we all love those K-1s, don't we? We love those K-1s. Definitely. And I will, I have to shamelessly put a little plug in and say that we do currently have a new deal over here at Blue Lake. And I will remind listeners that this is the last year to capture that 100% bonus depreciation. Yep. So sorry, part of my plug. It is. Yeah. And so I have a meeting with my CPA coming up in two weeks to kind of say, all right, what do I need to do to gain that 100% depreciation? And but obviously, I'm not very good because, like I said, I I booked some kind of loss this year. Well, that's all right. That's all right. It's all lessons learned. And this is the benefit, actually, of having a network, right? And spending time with people that are, you know, that are doing the same thing and are passionate about the same things. We're able to learn so much more from each other. I only became aware of, you know, kind of this other approach or strategy you know, maybe about six months ago myself. So it's all, you know, making sure that you're networking and and sharing all of that knowledge base with one another. So it's a great question. I wasn't prepared for that, (laughs) but fantastic question because I've been bouncing off the walls the past 
literally the past 12 hours since I, since I got that from my CPA. Yeah, no doubt. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It just happened to come to mind. Yeah. All right. Well, now is actually, I think, an extra time for you to shine, though, because you have really some special insights in my opinion, that most people don't because of your background, having been focused in supply and logistics throughout most of your your corporate career. So let's kind of talk about strategy and pivot over to talking about specifically inflation and supply chain and the challenges that are kind of coming along with that. What kind of insights can you share with listeners that you think are really important for them to know here and now? So big picture kind of taking us back to December and January or January of this year, you had 127 vessels off the coast of LA. And and I know we live in a 12 hour news cycle, right? It is, we're inundated, but we can kind of remember that at that time. And I'll use even Boston and Houston, China to Houston containers, China to Boston containers, you're about the same. Those costs were around $30,000 a container. They might have been trickling in a little bit less. Historically speaking, that ran about $3,000. So put yourself in the in a business who brings those in regularly and maybe brings in 100 containers a year, which, you know, a cabinet importer can easily be somebody who's, who's bringing that in. 100 containers a year that they're used to spending 300,000. Well, now that jumps to 3 million. Right. It's crazy. It's a crazy amount of money. Well, that did not translate to the consumer until Q2 of this year. So you've not only had the bottlenecks of a syndicator and, a, and actually an operator trying to renovate these apartments and builders trying to implement their building plans and home builders trying to build their houses, but costs. And these costs were real. So 10X costs did not hit until around Q1 or Q2 of 2022. And that's when the inflation became the headline news, not supply chain. So we're really looking at about a nine to 12 month delay before these things hit consumer pocketbooks. Now, the bright side is that's about when those prices started falling. And so in June, it went from 30,000 to 15. And then from June to today, we're at about 4,900. Interesting. So we are seeing then significant improvement in that bottleneck finally easing, if you will, right? Yes. Well, that's the encouraging. Is it is very encouraging, right? And so I've been projecting that by November, we're at pre-COVID levels. And it looks like I might be off a little bit, but... We're trending in the right direction for cost basis for importers. It's a fantastic thing for the consumer and for us as business owners, right? We're trying to budget a project. That won't translate to the distributors, the Lowe's, the Home Depots until probably Q1 of Q2 of next year, unfortunately. And once the Fed starts to see these prices reduced due to a lower cost basis, well, they always look three months back, right? They're mm-hmm. not doing they're not doing forward thinking, they're doing backward thinking. Well, once they start to see that data from March of 2023 and June of 2023, well now they'll they'll say, hey, 
the costs are looking, looks like everything we're doing is working. Well, now they'll start to reduce those interest rates. So my projection, let's be honest, they're being very aggressive with the interest rate and it's slowing transaction volume sure. dramatically. Definitely. Mm-hmm. But in addition, in addition to what they're doing, cost basis from labor overseas, cost basis from materials overseas, and cost basis from shipping overseas is dramatically increasing. There's an 80% reduction in costs from June. So we've got a real double whammy effect, and we should see some real reductions by Q1 next year. Interesting. Hopefully that results in the Fed pumping the brakes on these interest rates. Interesting. Yeah. And that was actually going to be the question that I was going to ask next is, so, you know, overall, what would you say to your average real estate investor? How should they feel about it? What advice or insight do you have into what you think is the best kind of position for them to take right now, considering these factors at play? My advice is, you know, stay in the market, but be wary because I think we're probably looking at two, maybe three more hikes. You know, this guy is not messing around. And he's going to continue to rise probably through the end of the year, maybe Q1, month one, January. And then it's, it's not going to be reduced until he sees inflation reducing. Right, right. Uh, so once that goes away, he'll start to ease those, those rates down. Right, but right. I'm just a guy in Houston. I, I think that's the unanimous consent, right? You know, I mean, everybody has different opinions, but I mean, one thing is very clear. Everyone is braced for choppy waters at the least, mm-hmm. right? And being aware of that, being cognizant of it, and then taking that into account in your underwriting, your expectations, your management, you know, especially asset management. You know, those are all really important factors. Yeah. So, you know, I can agree to that extent. And it's interesting to hear your predictions. So we'll have to see how it all plays out and how close to the bullseye you are on it. But nonetheless, I appreciate your insight given your career and, you know, some of the data that you have access to, you know, that the general population just doesn't even either have access to or never even thinks about candidly, right? Right. For many years, my family has always wondered why it is I'm going to all these weird places around the world or what is it you do? <laughs> and, and I'm finally I'm finally a resource, you know, when when they couldn't get things. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly everybody understood your job. Yeah. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. Even my wife, you know, my wife says it. Why is my package late? <laughs> <laughs> so I have to ask, is there any special tip or strategy that you would give to current owner and operators in getting around any of, you know, the little challenges that have existed? Absolutely. The players that have survived the best are the ones with the robust supply chain network, right? And that's been real unfortunate from my side because I like working with smaller entities and, and medium-sized entities. But let's be very real. The larger the players, the more robust their internal supply chain. You know, Walmart is a supply chain company. Mm-hmm. Lowe's, Home Depot. Home Depot, when they were in the thrust of this, they went out and they bought vessels. They were not going to be delayed. And they were not going to allow their sales to be delayed. So my advice to operators is partner with vendors who have contingency plans and who have robust partners. And that would always be my advice is, you know, have a fantastic team around you. 
Interesting. So we we began there and we end there, right? It always comes down yeah, to yeah. the team. Yeah. It always comes down to your always, network. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your price getting you? Yeah, exactly. How much does it really cost you? Exactly. Excellent. All right. Well, I love it. Our takeaway of the day is just simply at the end of the day, rather you're going to succeed with supply chain, investing in life. You know, it comes right. down to, yep, it comes down to the people that you surround yourself with, right? That's correct. Yeah. Well, good, good. All right. Well, Jeff, this has been fun. But before we let you go, I would like to ask you, yes, we have what we call the lightning round questions, which are five questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready? Ready as I'm going to be. I have no idea how you have time for this. But my first question for you is, what is one of your hobbies? This is my hobby. (laughs) The podcast interview, huh? Yeah, that we're solely dedicated to this. But what do I do in my time? I coach my son's football team. Most of my kids are active in athletics. So when you have five kids, you're pretty dedicated to family. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Having four myself, I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, what is something interesting about you that most people don't know? I sing all the time. (laughs) My family knows that. So, yeah. I sing all the time. Be careful. Your investors might start requesting some performances. (laughs) They can get it. All right. What is a book that you are currently reading or have read in the past that you would highly recommend listeners take a look into? Yep. I am currently reading Principles Hmm. by Dahlia. Getting through that. I don't read. I do Audible. Sure. I seem to be able to get through a lot more books with that. And I recommend Passive Investing Made Simple. That's a good one. It's by one of my mentors, Anthony Vecino. So I always recommend that. And of course, man, the rich dad, poor dad, (laughs) that's when kicks everybody off, right? Yeah, it definitely gets the wheels turning. That's for sure. Okay. And now just two more questions for you. One of the things that we, you know, try to be focused on here at Blue Lake Capital is actually building an extraordinary life, you know, beyond simple returns, beyond money, you know, but really, really striving for an extraordinary life. So what would be your advice to our listeners for building an extraordinary life? I'm a Christian first and foremost. So most everything that I do, I try to do to glorify him, you know, so start the day. I miss today, but I read the Bible, try to finish it with the Bible. And that's what I would say would give you an extraordinary life is because all of this can be for nothing, but you really do for others. And you do for him. Nice. I would perceive it. It's meant to be your advice. So a very good advice. All right. Well, thank you. All right. And then last but not least, if listeners want to get in touch with you to follow up and pick your brain further on supply chain or anything else, how can they contact you? Okay. We have a resource about why we got into multifamily investing. It's multifamilyadvice.com. You can go in there and get that white paper and... It includes all the things, right? Cash flow and tax benefits and everything that is why we're investing in multifamily and why I think you should definitely research it. And some of the deals we're investing in, all in Texas primarily. Awesome. Multifamilyadvice.com. All right. Perfect. Well, we'll make sure to include those in the show notes. And as a born and bred Texan, even though I'm a Boston transplant now, I still love my Texas. So I'll always speak well of it. And this has been very fun. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. 
And for those of you that joined in with us today, please be sure to like and subscribe, rate and review. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you'd like to see more of. And until then, in the words of Ellie, be bold, be brave, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.